0: Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. About 75 years ago, doctors were
1: very worried. For a while in the 1940s, roughly one out of almost every two people in this country died of heart disease.
0: It was a killer that captured the attention of the American medical establishment, says Sandeep Johar, a cardiologist and director of the heart failure program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center.
1: And there's a, a famous speech by Harry Truman. Where he speaks about heart disease, using almost the same language as he spoke about the Soviets and the Iron Curt- Curtain that was descending over Eastern Europe, he said, "This is a tremendous challenge to the American public. Um, it is one that you know we have to fight with all our might and technology." In a sense, it was sort of like AIDS in the early 1980s, in that it was a disease that dominated American medicine you know, in terms of research dollars, as well as um, politically.
0: In fact, Truman's predecessor, Franklin Roosevelt, had suffered from rising blood pressure leading up to his death in 1945. His last blood pressure measurement was a rather shocking 226 over 118. But his doctor didn't pay much attention to it. Truman saw the impact of heart disease, and he knew things had to change.
1: So, You know, in the wake of FDR's death, which was a, you know, national trauma, the death of a beloved president who had gotten us through, you know, two of the most eventful periods in American history, the Great Depression and World War II. You know, in that wake, Congress decided to found the National Heart Institute under the umbrella of the National Institutes of Health.
0: Johar, who's a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times, says this pushed us towards a new understanding of the heart. Doctors invented cutting-edge procedures to help people with heart disease. Pioneering studies were launched to figure out what factors contributed to the disease. A few of those things, Johar says, were smoking, high blood pressure, and diabetes. What the big studies of heart disease didn't tend to focus on, at least in those early days, was the impact of more intangible things, things that might have seemed a little squishier to the medical establishment. But in the 1970s, the scholar Michael Marmot did research on a particular population in the San Francisco area, research that would tell us something crucial
1: about the nature of the heart. In the study, Japanese immigrants in the United States were looked at. Now... People who live in Japan actually have very low rates of coronary disease. Those who move to the United States tend to have higher rates. Those who move to Hawaii actually have intermediate rates between those who live in mainland United States and those who live in Japan. So it seems like the, the further that, that Japanese immigrants move away from mainland Japan, the more heart disease they develop.
0: The thinking was, well, that's because immigrants adopt American diets. And once they do that, they start to mimic American cholesterol levels and blood pressure. And voila, they're at a higher risk for heart disease. The Bay Area study proved that assumption
1: was wrong. Those who had a more traditional lifestyle that was sort of in keeping with their Japanese roots. In other words, they had more Japanese friends, they had more Japanese coworkers. They spoke Japanese more. Their kids spoke Japanese more. tended to have much less coronary disease, sort of in line with their counterparts still living in Japan. Those who ha- were more westernized and adopted more of an American social lifestyle, they tended to have much more coronary disease, sort of in keeping with the disease rates in Americans living in the United States. So, so th- that study really showed that psychosocial factors have to be important in the development of heart disease because you can't explain why coronary disease rates differed so much in these two subgroups that had essentially the same diet, exercise, blood pressures, cholesterols, and so on. The only thing that really substantially differed was the way that they chose to live.
0: Sandeep Johar is the author, most recently, of Heart, A History. He argues that the next frontier for heart disease is prevention, and thinking more about the heart in the ways that the study of Japanese Americans did. Which isn't to say that blood pressure or smoking or diet aren't important, because they clearly are. But there are squishier things that are pretty key, too, like love and friendship and community the power of the heart both as a focus of medicine and as a symbol of love and goodness has fascinated johar his entire life sure it's something that gets operated on but it's also something we innately know to be affected by emotion think about expressions like put your heart into it wearing your heart on your sleeve having a heart that's overflowing think about all the heart-shaped cards that people give out on valentine's day Johar says some of the mental and physical connections that the heart makes, which we're just starting to understand, they have in some sense been understood by philosophers for thousands of years.
1: In the Middle Ages, the plant called silphium was used as a way of birth control. And the seed pod of silphium actually resembles the valentine heart. So that may be one of the reasons why the heart became associated with You know, sex and romantic love, but before that, the Greeks, even the ancient Egyptians, thought of the heart as the sort of central player in the body, one uh, the place where the where the soul resided. In fact, when the Egyptians used to bury people, they used to take out their hearts as an offering to the um, underworld. It was very clear to the ancients that the heart was the central actor in, in, right. in the body, and in, in many ways that uh, that is still the case.
0: Um, you tell this amazing story in your book of the first permanent artificial heart. Um, it was given to a man in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, 1982, and his wife, you know, he's had this big surgery going in for this big surgery and his wife says to doctors which you quote will he still be able to love me and i feel like that yeah. speaks to even even with all the medical science we know our even current conflation of like the medical value of the heart and like the emotional value of the heart
1: exactly i mean i think that speaks to the central role of the heart in our culture and one of the themes of my book is that even though we know today that the heart is not the seat of the soul or the repository of the emotions per se, our emotional lives affect our hearts in multiple mysterious ways. We know today that you know surges of adrenaline caused by emotional stress can have very harmful effects on the heart, both chronically uh, as well as acutely. And you know one of the things I talk about in the book is the um, the so-called Takasubo syndrome. Takasubo uh, refers to a Japanese octopus trapping pot. Now, what does that have to do with the heart? Well, it turns out that when people suffer intense emotional upset, usually after the breakup of a romantic relationship, but sometimes after the loss of a spouse, they can develop what it is commonly known as the broken heart syndrome. Mm-hmm. The heart actually acutely weakens, for reasons we don't quite understand, into uh, and changes shape into a takasubo, which is a Japanese octopus trapping pot. We don't know why it occurs. Um, we first um, identified this uh, syndrome probably about 25 years ago in autopsy studies of people who had been uh, emotionally or physically attacked, but had not died from their injuries, but had instead died of cardiac causes. And when their hearts were autopsied, there were telltale signs of heart damage and cell death. And then subsequently, we were able to identify living patients with this syndrome. Now, in many cases, the Takasubo cardiomyopathy resolves, but there is a fairly large subset of patients who progress to life-threatening arrhythmias, congestive heart failure and even death. Hmm. And you know what's interesting is that a couple of things, a couple more things I'll say about it. One is that that you can develop a kind of takotsubo cardiomyopathy after a happy event too, like for example, you know, at a surprise birthday party or something like that, but the heart actually changes into a different shape, not a takotsubo, but actually a different shape. Now, why a different emotional precipitant would cause a different biological change in the human heart is completely unknown. That's one mystery. The other um, sort of interesting fact is that the Takotsubo cardiomyopathy can happen not just after emotional upset, but also after widespread social upheaval. Like, for example, after a hurricane or an earthquake, they have done studies where where patients can develop this, this condition after sort of widespread... Um, environmental damage, loss of a home, and, and, you know, and so on. So, you know, it's just, it, it just speaks to the fact that even though the heart doesn't contain the emotions, it's very responsive to them. So, in a sense, our emotional lives are written on our hearts. Hmm. So,
0: heart failure is your specialty. Yes. Um, do you want to tell the story of how you became interested in the heart in the first place? Like, why it became your whole life?
1: Yeah. Well, uh, I have a very malignant family history of heart disease. My paternal grandfather died before I was born and, um, he died actually in front of my father of a sudden heart attack. My father was not yet 14 years old and they were sitting together having lunch. He and my grandfather and my grandfather, um, you know, slumped to the floor a traumatic uh, event had, had occurred earlier in the day. He'd actually been bitten by a snake Hmm. and the family assumed that the death was from the snake bite. But when my grandfather was taken to the hospital, the doctor confirmed that no, it was not, you know, venom from the snake, that nothing else could have killed my grandfather so quickly and that he was a heart attack. Now, maybe it was Provoked by right. the worry or trauma from the snake bite, so that event is probably one of the most important events in my lifetime, and it happened before I was born and the reason why I say that is because my father never got over his father's death um it happened when he was a teenager, and the grief from that death would um come out at various times you know through my childhood you know, there was a sort of the, there was a kind of grief that suffused the household uh, not all the time but you know it, it 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 was almost always there and so i kind of grew up with a fear of the heart as the executioner of men in the prime of their lives my grandfather was healthy apart from the snake bite earlier that morning i mean he was he seemed perfectly fine he was vigorous he was working and all of a sudden he was dead and to, to me, it seemed like such a cheat that you could be healthy and, and actually still die. And, and there's only one organ that can mediate that, and that's the heart. And so I grew up with that fascination. and then uh, a few years back, when I learned that I have the beginnings of coronary artery disease, that you know did nothing to mm-hmm. lessen my uh, fascination and obsession um, you know with the heart.
0: You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. I'm talking with Dr. Sandeep Johar, director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center and the author of Heart, A History. You know, one thing you say, though, is, you know, since Harry Truman said, let's tackle this thing, let's get on it with heart disease. So, you know, about since the late 40s or 19 or the, the, the early 50s. We've done an incredible job in reducing uh, the amount of heart disease in the U.S. How have we done that? What's sort of the new technology, the new research that's allowed us to do that?
1: Well, there's been an amazing progress in uh, in uh, heart technology, you know, in the last uh, 60 years or so, most of it's spearheaded in, in America. So if you think about the treatments that we usually associate with heart disease, stents, coronary angiograms, angioplasty, heart transplants, artificial hearts, coronary bypass surgery, and then pacemakers, defibrillators, all of that was developed essentially in the last half century or so. So there's been tremendous technological progress. And in fact, death rates from heart disease in the United States peaked in 1968, the year I was born. Hmm. And there's been a steady decline in part because of medical technology, in part because of drug therapy, and also in part because of public health innovations and public health initiatives like promoting smoking cessation, Mm -hmm. having people know their cholesterol uh, know their blood pressure, try to reduce those risk factors. All that was was instrumental in cutting down the rates of heart disease. But what's interesting is that in the last decade or so, the decline has decreased. Hmm. So heart rate deaths are leveling off. Okay. We're, we're, we're not seeing the kind of benefit that we got used to seeing in the 70s and 80s and 90s. Uh, now, in part, that might be because Americans are more sedentary. There's probably more obesity. There's um, a probably a hidden epidemic of diabetes. But what I try to argue in the book is that although we can expect medical innovations and, and technologies to continue, I think that in some sense, heart treatments have become a victim of their own success. The success it was really stupendous. Treatment for heart disease is one of the great success stories uh, of the 20th century in medicine. But I think that we, in the future, will have to pay more attention to our emotional lives, to our community connections, to sort of sustain the kind of progress uh, in heart disease that we've become accustomed to.
0: Hmm. When you look back at that progress over the last 50 or 70 years, do you think there was a single technology that jumps out to you as like the most important or the most striking?
1: Well, I would say that one of the key uh, themes in my book is that the heart was encased in taboos that made it an organ that people just didn't want to mess with. In fact, even as late as the late 19th century, the heart had never been operated on. every other organ in the body, including the brain had been operated on, but not the heart. and the reasons for that are somewhat obvious. One is the heart is constantly moving. It's very hard to stitch into an organ that moves in such an agitated way, mm-hmm. uh, like the human heart. The other is that the heart is constantly filled with blood. In fact, the typical blood volume in an adult human passes through the, through the heart every minute. so if you cut open the heart, you would bleed to death typically within a minute or so. So these were huge challenges. How do we operate on an organ that's filled with blood and constantly moving? So the, the solution, as we know today, was the invention of the heart-lung machine, a machine that would actually take over the circulation while the patient's heart was stopped, emptied of blood, opened up and fixed, and then they were weaned off the heart-lung machine. So I would say that the... the, So
0: the blood just routes through this machine? Is that how it works?
1: That's right. So the, the machine essentially is hooked up in parallel with the heart, and it shunts blood into the machine and away from the heart. And so then the heart is emptied of blood and then is basically stopped through... A, you know, injection of potassium chloride—it fibrillates. It doesn't, no longer beats, and then you mm-hmm. can cut it open and fix it. Wow. Um, now, the the development of the heart-lung machine took many decades. In fact, the first proposal for the heart-lung machine really wasn't until uh, the late 1920s. But the machine itself wasn't built till 1954. So, before the machine was built, doctors had some outlandish ways of performing heart surgery, and I'll just tell you about one quick one. Okay. One of the most innovative surgeons of the 20th century, a, a guy named Walt Lillehei, who worked in Minneapolis, looked at the way that a uh, pregnant woman supplies blood to and oxygen to her fetus. Now, the fetus doesn't breathe. It's, it's floating in fluid. The way that the fetus grows and is nourished is because of blood supply from the mother that delivers oxygen and removes waste. So a little high reason, well, why can't I hook up a mother or a father to a child who needs open-heart surgery, hook them up artery-to-artery, vein-to-vein, and have the parent's heart beating blood, circulating blood, into the child, just like a human heart-lung machine, while I stop the heart of the baby or the child open it up, fix it, and then disconnect the two humans and hope for the best. And uh, he did these studies initially in dogs, and they didn't work Mm -hmm. because there were problems with the connection of the circuits. But ultimately, he perfected the technique and eventually tried it on humans. Now, you can imagine the uproar. People said, you know, this is the first operation in human history that could kill two people. Mm -hmm. And no one wanted to let little high... Try it, but the reality was that congenital heart disease was a death sentence for children. Most didn't make it to adulthood, and Lilahai reasoned that these these kids were condemned to an early death, and he was going to do whatever he, it took to to fix their hearts so that they could live normal lives. And in fact, he performed these surgeries. Initially, there were deaths, and that's very very unfortunate. But you know, one thing that we tend to forget in medicine is that there's always a learning curve, and someone has to go first. And you know, unfortunately, in the 19 early 1950s, those people who went first were were small children, and it was um, it was difficult for everyone to watch. But in the end, Little High performed this technique of hooking up a parent to a child about 45 times, with 28 long-term survivors, hmm. which was much better than the natural history of congenital heart disease. So history has judged his work to be successful. Hmm. So I would say that the probably the central innovation that I talk about in the book and is central to the uh, amelioration of, of heart disease and heart disease deaths in this country was the invention of the heart-lung machine.
0: Hmm. So finally, um, since you said we are not seeing the same kinds of reductions in death from um, heart disease that we've seen over the past several decades, um, but, but since it's still the top killer in America, as a cardiologist, if somebody was saying to you, look, I'm really trying to avoid heart disease, um, you know, what do you think I should do, what would you say?
1: Well, I would say that there are some obvious things. Don't smoke. Eat Right exercise, but also I think it's very clear to, to me today after two decades in the field that we need to pay more attention to our emotional lives, the quality of our relationships, our marital health, our, the health of our relationships with our children. You know, the connection and community are always thought of as aspects of our lives that improve the quality of our life. But I think that it's becoming increasingly clear that those things are important for our lifespans also. So the quality of our relationships, how we love, our capacity to transcend distress, those things are also a matter of life and death.
0: Dr. Sandeep Johar is a cardiologist. He's a contributing opinion writer for the New York Times. And he's also the author, most recently, of Heart, A History. Sandeep, thank you so much. Thank you. If you want to learn more about why Joe Hart thinks that emotions, community, and well-being are crucial to our future studies of heart health, he's written a New York Times op-ed about it. We'll have a link to that on our website, innovationhub.org.